Rico Nerd. This week, it's me, Will Davis, a.k.a. Peanuts Larry. And me, Leah Richards, or The Nation of Estonia. You may wonder what brings these two things together, this Baltic state, this American football coach and player. It's their birthday this Sunday, and it's also our birthday too, as a podcast. Not as individuals, as a production. Our first episode was... Recorded this time last year. It took me a couple of days to actually, you know, make it and put it out, but... From August 2016 through to August 2017, we have seen a lot of change in the world. We've seen a lot of news stories come our way. We've seen a lot of news that we haven't had the time to talk about as well. But if we go back to episode 11, all that time ago, have you had any sleep since then? No. If anything, I've been having less sleep since then. Have you won the lottery? No. They do say you've got to be in it to win it. and Yeah, we should probably, A, play the lottery... And B, get nicer pillows. Both of those might help. Um, So this is in relation to the headline, better sleep feels like winning the lottery. And that's not, that situation obviously hasn't improved for us personally. If someone out there would like to give us 750 million pounds or a nice bed, then we can do some experiments, let you know, are we more well rested? Do we feel better being rich? Let's, you know, let's take this to task. Let's do what we can to improve the science and give back to the community which we've spent the last 21 episodes just kind of poking fun at. Yeah, something, something sample sizes? I'll settle for a queen. That'll be my sample size. Queen bed. <laughs> That's the sample size. Is a queen bed with two people in it. Oh, I don't want to, like, push it out there with a California king or something. That is unrepresentative. Also, I don't think it would fit in our bedroom for science. Well, other topics that we've covered going back all the way to episode four have certainly been at the forefront of my mind over the last few weeks as we've been watching the world at large. In episode four, we mentioned What Do Americans Fear? The Chapman University Annual Survey of American Fears. And oh boy, we didn't expect you to take that as a challenge, America. Truly, they have acted on those fears and a lot of them they've made worse. Like the number one fear, corruption of government officials. 60.6% of Americans were scared of this. So how have they resolved that fear with having... By electing someone who's not a politician at all. Not a politician has had ongoing corruption allegations with links to business, foreign governments, getting the Secret Service who now protect him to have to pay his own company for the golf buggies they hire on his golf course... When someone says, are you scared of corruption? You don't say, oh yeah, we are very scared of corruption. We're going to face that fear with absolute corruption because absolute power or something. That was the sales pitch, though. The government's corrupt. I'm not part of it. Watch me outdo every single one of them. Let's have a look at some of these other fears then. Inadequate funds for the future. Well, how about you just don't fund anything for anyone, then? You cut your veterans' bills, your arts' bills, museums, everything that was getting funding, just don't. How about the people? Your economy is doing better, sure, as a country, but that's also been happening for the last eight, nine years. Like You can't take direct credit for that, and a lot of that money is not going to a lot of people. As for the gun control and loved ones seriously ill, well, if things keep going the way they are with our kind of global Mad Max future getting closer and closer, then that's gonna resolve itself in one of two ways. What always makes me laugh is 
looking at this, the fact that both serious illness for loved ones and the Affordable Care Act are both on 35%. Loved ones tops it out. There's 0.4% in it. But one of those things will help with the other. Maybe there's 70% of people who are scared of being ill or having someone treated, and the other 30% of Americans are just kind of scared generally about everything. That seems like a safe position to be. Yeah, I can't really blame them. Mm. I think if I was there, I would also be living in a near-constant state of general worry, on my own behalf and that of other people. Well, at least if you're scared of the Obamacare Affordable Health Act, then congratulations, you've managed to not repeal or replace it, even when the option was just nothing. Like a blank piece of paper that only said repeal in its totality and leave millions without insurance to just die in a dump. So I guess you dodged that one. And what else have we seen under recent world developments? We've seen 45 disband the Climate Change Advisory Committee and has had numerous people from his Science Advisory Committee step down because of a bunch of reasons. I'm guessing he's not going with the news from episode 15 that believing you can stop climate change will incentivize you and give you more purpose in actually stopping climate change. It's difficult to believe you can stop something you don't believe is happening. Or believe is a Chinese conspiracy. And what about the news from episode 17 that replacing coal power stations with solar can save lives and money when the number of people employed by the coal industry in America is tiny? Like 5,000 people. The number employed by solar is already more people than that. But guess which of the two has been actively cut? This was never actually about the money. They always make out like it's about the money, but it's ideological. And you'd think that taking down all of those coal mining rigs would maybe make space for hydraulic fracturing stations to take their place and go drilling into shale deposits, as they are increasingly attempting in England. Even though, as we discussed in episode 9, that the spills recorded from these fracking plants is not at all representative of the amount of oil and pollution lost into nearby water systems, and that, as we've recently posted on Facebook, treated hydraulic fracturing wastewater will still pollute the area for dozens and dozens of years. It's still not a good idea. Like, could we invest in renewable energy sources? No, let's explode the ground and make our water catch fire so we can get a bit more gas. What's it going to cost us? A national park. Makes me wonder if when we talked about the mass extinctions in episode 17, did we extend that to include human mass extinction as well? Or was it just, you know, all of the loss of biodiversity? I don't think we mentioned it, and it is one of the... One of the things that I think people overlook when we're talking about being ecologically friendly and looking after our planet is the planet will outlive us. Life will outlive us. We can do enough damage to the Earth to wipe ourselves out. We may take many, many species with us, but something will come back. Something will take our place. This is one of the things where actually engaging our selfishness might be worthwhile. You can go, it's not just about you, it's about the planet. But it is about you. It is about you because you're going to drown. And before you drown, it's going to be hot. It's going to be raining. It's going to be unexpected snow. It's going to be paying 20 quid for a banana because it's got so difficult to ship them. I mean, there are countries in the world which are 
thinking it through. Uh, China has just doubled down on its solar plants, uh, replacing old coal fields with solar energy harvesting stations now, aiming for 20% of renewables by 2020. The UK government has just reiterated its intention of reaching 15% renewable sourced energy by 2020. Denmark and Sweden have been powering ahead. They've got huge amounts of renewable energy coming and going. Costa Rica, there was the news in May that they managed to power themselves for an entire month without burning any fossil fuels because of excess wind and water power, which admittedly came from unusual weather events, and there's more of those going around, but still, well done, lads. There's so many ways that things can be better. Let's let's do that. There's not really a good reason not to. Here's a bad reason not to. In episode 14, we talked about testosterone making men less likely to question their impulses, and looking at some of the social, sociological news from the last few weeks, men have a lot to explain about themselves. A lot to answer. Particularly the ones that are brought up never being told no, apparently. Or the ones who don't seem to acknowledge their own position of privilege and the hierarchical social structures which disenfranchise and disempower other people, like when we talked about in episode 7, that white people have difficulty noticing white people are white. And that intervention with youth on ethnic and racial identities can enhance positive development in episode 12. And this does go for white people as well. Obviously, that was uh, focusing on youth of a variety of ethnic backgrounds, but it has as much of a positive impact on white kids as it does on black kids, as it does on Latin kids, Asian kids, whoever. It's very good for us as white people to acknowledge our whiteness and, like own it and i don't mean in that nationalistic supremacist sort of way because that's a pile of garbage before you go shouting for a white history month have a look at some of that white history and see if there's anything in there that you really want to be proud of yeah just possessing the fact as british people that one of the big sources of national pride for this country for very many years was the empire which was exploitative, which has made a horrible mess of a bunch of countries that we were squatting in. And you can acknowledge that history and move forwards with it, or you can try and ignore it. You might say, well, there was good people on both sides. Or you can try and pretend that we deserved to do that, which is, again, going back to that white supremacist nonsense. Maybe if we were replacing politicians full of testosterone with those who, you know, are just not going to have very much testosterone kicking about. Oh, you mean with the group of people who have the most stable hormones of all of the people, the postmenopausal women? Yeah, maybe a few of those put in power around America. Yeah, because, you know, going, oh, well, what if she has... What if she's in a bad mood on her period and hits the nuclear button? Doesn't really count when you stopped having periods ten years ago. And considering as the alternative, which a lot of American people knowingly chose, was someone who gets angry at TV shows on Twitter and can't stop himself. Like, you're going to trust this guy with a nuclear button when he can't handle an autocorrect? So that's been the world at large over the last year. Some highlights, some lowlights. Mostly, unfortunately, lowlights. But there has been some good news which it has been our pride and privilege to share with you. We've talked about 
singing mice and shrimp bags and the ways we can save the world the ways we can save ourselves cool stuff about robots lots of cool stuff about robots and with a new piece of research we might even help ease some of the fears that we might have stoked up over the last few minutes because in a new piece of research coming to us from the journal neuron it might be possible that not only can we ease our fears we can even erase them right out of our own heads now obviously some fears it's useful to have if your response to having been stung by a wasp as a small child is that now you will avoid wasps that's fair enough if for example you've been traumatized in a car accident it's going to make it quite hard to carry on with your life if every time you get in a car you're having flashbacks yes these traumatic events will often entrench themselves in your mind with certain triggers a lot of soldiers have real trouble when it comes to the 5th of November in England or July 4th in America because a lot of fireworks going off can bring back some very unpleasant memories. There are even more esoteric things that service personnel struggle with. For example, if you picked up PTSD in a particular combat scenario, hearing the accents of local people to that area can be a problem. But new research led by John Hyung Cho at the UC Riverside School of Medicine is finding those fears in the brain, finding the actual neurons that make them up, and just blasting them with low levels of light to just take those fear centers, those clusters of activated neurons, in mouse models at least, and make them drift away. And this is using a sort of Pavlovian model. They were played auditory cues, a low-pitched cue and high-pitched cue, and the high-pitched tone was paired with a mild electric shock. And having then conditioned a fear response into the mice, this method of optogenetics was used to weaken the synaptic connection and effectively erase the fear memory. And as Cho themselves says later on in the press release, using low-frequency stimulations of light were able to erase fear memory by artificially weakening connections conveying signals of the sensory cue, the high-pitched tone from the experiments, which are associated with the adverse event, the shock. And this, he goes on to say, expands our understanding of how adaptive fear memory for a relevant stimulus is encoded in the brain. And if you can think of how this is going to be useful for, like you say, treating PTSD, treating whatever averse reaction people are having, auditory or visual simulations, any cues they've got which causes this reaction that they don't want to have, then yeah, maybe by removing those fears we can eventually move on to the blissful future in which we don't have to think about 2017 ever again. Just wipe <laughs> the whole year right from everyone's head. Kids will ask, oh, what happened in 2016? People made some poor choices. In 2017, we don't talk about that. Of course, this flexibility of the brain to be zapped with a low-level light, the optogenetics that you mentioned, ties in neatly to our next story, coming from the journal Cell, in which it's looking at the very process of learning and how memories are stored in the brain to start with, finding that actually what we think of as a hard-coded memory, this pathway from one brain cell to another that we think of as, well, here's where that memory is, repeat that pathway, the learning is entrenched, that's much more flexible than we've previously given the brain credit for. Again, this is 
experiments performed on mice. They were run through a virtual maze over the course of a month and imaging their brain activity revealed that rather than a learned response having been created, remaining fixed in a particular pattern of neurons in the brain, it drifted. It began to fade and shift and even get mixed up and reversed. I'm quoting Chris Harvey, Associate Professor of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School. He says that our experiments point to far less stability in neurons that link the sensory cues to action than we would have expected and suggest a presence of more flexibility, indeed some sort of neuronal efficiency. We believe that this trade-off ensures a delicate balance on the ability to incorporate new information while preserving old memories. He gives the example later of, imagine a person driving down a familiar route to the grocery store who sees the bank and turns right to that corner without having to think about it consciously. Autopilot, my mum always used to call it when she realised that she'd been driving for 20 minutes in the wrong direction. Yes, my dad tells a story about an old boss whose morning routine was on autopilot so deeply entrenched that he didn't wake up until he got to the office and was deeply, deeply shaken one morning when he woke up halfway through the drive into work because there were roadworks which disturbed the routine. He would get up, get washed, get dressed, eat breakfast, get in the car, drive to work without engaging at all. I would like someone to erase the fear of this man crashing into me because he's not awake while he's driving, please. I mean, he was conscious, but he wasn't like engaged. The autopilot is turned off by anything unexpected being on the journey, so if someone jumps out in the road in front of you, then your brain has to switch on and go, oh, I'm not prepared for this manual control. So he's... I mean, he hadn't crashed in 15 years of doing it. It's still kind of alarming. Bowen Harvey later says, I hope this research inspires people to think of memory as something that is not static but active and integrally connected to the process of learning. Maybe this explains why you often ask me, how do you not remember that we said we would do this thing? How do you not remember this gig that you were interested in? Because my brain is very flexible. I am puddleish in the head. I've got a big <laughs> old puddle of putty just rattling around in there. I'm too busy learning all this stuff. I just find it very difficult to relate to having expressed interest in something and then forgotten completely forgetting it like you might not necessarily be going around going oh i remember that thing oh i remember that thing constantly but if someone goes you know that thing at the museum that we saw it's weird that that doesn't remind you that you're still like okay we probably had this conversation i'll take your word for it me and this bunch of mice in virtual mazes are clearly just other stuff going on. If there are any neurologists listening who've got an idea as to uh, why my boyfriend is such a flake in this particular way. Like, I mean, you're very organised in other ways, but you managed to forget once that you were supposed to be flying to Paris the following day. Like... I don't even remember that. So, as I said, if any neurologists can work out why, in this one particular way, this otherwise sensible man is so vague, let us know. We should probably stop talking about my terrible memory and move on to something. 
And seriously though, if anyone wants to, if anyone wants to like just have a discussion about how brains are weird and variable, we're a pretty good case study, I guess. Yeah, with your super attention and my butterfly <laughs> my, mind. My... <laughs> Except it's not super attention, is it? You remember so much about so many things. Because it's interesting. I find it very difficult to relate to people who don't remember facts because they don't consider them interesting. Like, all information is interesting. I think that's where it is. <laughs> that you have such an interest in so many things that it all finds a place to live in your head. <laughs> Me, on the other hand, it's... Have I had lunch yet? And I did forget to have breakfast today, so... Speaking of shocking gaps in basic knowledge, that is actually the start of the next title of our next press release, looking at some more shocking gaps in basic knowledge, this time about something that, I mean, I certainly don't know much about, so I'm feeling better about this already. Deep Sea Life. It is a commonly quoted factoid that we know more about deep space than we do about the deep sea. More about the surface of the moon than the bottom of the ocean. We know, like, barely anything about what's down there. We've only, within my memory, firmly established that coelacanths are still extant and giant squid are a thing rather than a legend. Obviously, it's partly a shame that we aren't getting more research down there. I don't know if you have seen some of the videos of uh, marine biologists watching uh, remote submersible videos, but they're adorable. If you've never heard a whole group of marine biologists cooing over a small ocean invertebrate, you're you're missing out. Go look them up. They're great. But also, as we as a species are having increasing impact in the regions where we live, we're also having more impact on the deep sea. We are increasing the overall temperature of the planet, we might be making some parts of the ocean deeper by melting ice caps into it, we're dropping vast quantities of plastic into the ocean. I remember the Great Pacific Plastic Gyre from episode 20. And we don't know a lot about what's living down there, so we can't predict what effect we might be having. In fact, even attempting to understand what is happening down there is hard. Obviously it's very hard to do because, I mean, James Cameron might be able to chuck himself in a submersible and go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, but that's James Cameron. He has more money than God. Everyone else has to go through an ethics clearance. So, how about a genetic understanding of what's happening at the bottom of the ocean then? Apparently, in the last 30 years, there have been 77 population genetic studies on invertebrate species, the kinds found at such depths, including coral gardens, snails, urchins. And out of those papers, the majority cover just 115 species, which have been focused on the shallow end of things, about 200 to 1,000 metres, which, compared to the ocean, believe me, is shallow. So overall, if you want to weigh the amount of research that has been done on life at the bottom of the ocean, only nine papers, nine peer-reviewed published papers, account for 50% of the planet's surface. All seafloor below 3,500 metres deep is half of the planet's surface. It's also where we think life comes from, so that's 
we should probably make an effort to understand what's happening down there. If there's anything coming out of geothermal vents, that is our last common known ancestor. And that is another one that's a relatively recent development. I remember as a tiny child being originally told about the history of the universe and the origin of life, that it was probably some sort of scummy puddle on the surface that might have been struck by lightning or had a meteorite drop into it that gave some sort of a spark to get some proteins to coalesce together into what we might consider a living thing. And it definitely has in the last 20 years turned around to people being like, no, deep sea vents. That seems a more likely prospect. Because we know nothing about what's down there. There's a great sci-fi series uh, called The Behemoth Series, I think it is, about deep-sea divers who accidentally bring back an archaic form of life from these hydrothermal vents, which turns out to outcompete modern cellular life on the surface. Things get real mutated and real gross real quick. What's unlikely to be mutated and gross is Christopher Rotterham, co-author and postdoctoral researcher from the University of Oxford's Department of Zoology, when he says that Today's humans have an unprecedented ability to affect the lives of creatures living in one of the most remote environments on Earth. At a time when the exploitation of deep-sea resources is increasing, scientists are still trying to understand basic concepts of biology and ecology of the deep-sea communities. Population genetics is an important tool that might help us understand how deep-sea communities function and in turn how resilient they will be to a future to the increasing threat of human impacts. Because the plastic stuff we've been doing on the surface, that's going to sink. These insights can help governments and other stakeholders figure out ways to control and sustainably manage human activities to ensure a healthy deep-sea ecosystem. Because I don't want to anger the ocean. I don't, I don't want giant squids coming for me. And they will. The giant squids will come for you. Christopher Rotterham has it right in his final quote of We cannot bury our heads in the sand and think that people are not going to try and exploit resources in the deep sea, so science needs to catch up. Because if we've learned anything from sci-fi, looking at you, Wayland yutani you space bastards, you can't just send people into a new, unexplored region and expect they're not going to probably try and turn a quick buck. And speaking of resources that we're not yet exploiting you know that whole thing about millennials and avocados oh you mean avocados on toast avocados on toast you can't buy a house just avocados on toast that's the one i mean there is i, I think people are more obsessed with avocados than they really deserve food wise it's not really my jam Unless you've mashed it into guacamole, in which case... If you cover anything in lime and chilli, it's going to be better. Exactly. Apart from toothpaste. That was an upsetting turn. Anyway, avocados might be a mine of medicinal and industrial compounds, and not the whole avocado. Like you can still get these things out after you've eaten the delicious bits of the avocado. You can still get these things out after you've pounded the oil from the seed to use for your hair care because the husk of the avocado seed turns out has got all sorts of interesting chemical compounds in it. So the one bit of the avocado that people haven't been using is maybe the most useful part? Or at least that's the position of Debesish Bandiopadhe of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley who says that it could very well be that avocado seed husks, which most people consider as the waste of the wastes, actually the gem of gems.
which is a nice term, could be containing compounds that will eventually be used to treat cancer, heart disease and other conditions, and a source of chemicals for use in plastics and industrial products. A ground down, about 300 dried avocado seed husks, yielding 21 ounces of powder. They processed this further to produce about three teaspoons of seed husk oil and a little more than an ounce of seed husk wax, which they then ran through a gas chromatography mass spectrometry analysis and found 116 compounds in the oil and 16 in the wax, many of which don't turn up in the kernel of the avocado seed and include useful ingredients such as behenyl alcohol, also known as docosanol, an important ingredient for antiviral medication. Heptacosane, which might inhibit the growth of tumour cells. And dodecanoic acid, which increases high-density lipoprotein and could re- reduce the risk of atherosclerosis. Meanwhile, in the wax, researchers detect benzyl-butyl phthalate, which is always fun to say, a plasticizer used to promote flexibility in synthetic products from shower curtains to medical devices. Do you want to take this one? There's two butoxyethyl phthalate, which can be used in cosmetics, and butylated hydroxytoluene, which is a food additive. That's only the ones that are familiar. And let's face it, 300 avocados. Any of the cafes and coffee places around Bristol is going to be getting through those by Tuesday. Yeah, if you've been in an Itsu lately, those fancy Japanese-esque spin-off from Pret, you will have seen everything's got avocado on it. Everything tastes of green soap. Yay, I guess. People are very into their avocado. Some people absolutely love avocado to the point where one of my friends, when we were having a discussion about this the other week, I said, it tastes of soap, and she called me a barbarian. (laughs) Clearly our palate just isn't cultured enough. I still love guacamole. I just don't like avocado by itself. Well, you know what? We have had a whole year now of recording these podcasts. And after all of that time, do we have any idea what a nanoscale wireless communication system via plasmonic antenna might really entail? Or indeed, what they mean by optomechanically induced non-reciprocity. These are questions we've been asking since episode one and three, and... And we still don't have a single clue. We we need to talk to some physicists. Our physicists need to talk to us. If you're a physicist out there, can you explain some of these words, please? Can you try and break this down so that two people whose scientific knowledge is of the uh, squishy living kind, mostly... Someone whose memory has previously been highlighted to be porous at best... Someone whose degree was in journalism, for God's sake, I don't understand. I don't know. I can tell you how not to get sued for defamation, or at least how not to get sued for defamation as of uh, four years ago. But I don't know. I don't know what a plasmonic antenna is. I think we've done well by making it the year that we have. But we do need to we do need to pick the brains of some physicists. But if there are any physicists out there who would like to get in touch at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter or Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com, then you've got plenty of time to do it. We're going to take the next few episodes off. We're going to have ourselves a little holiday. We are going to be out of the country for a little while during this period. But we'll still be on the internet. You'll find us on Twitter, on Facebook, poking at science that we don't understand and asking it to not eat us. 
If you've got any questions or concerns, obviously, if you want to share us with your friends and family or help people who you don't know find us by leaving rates and reviews on whatever podcast platform you're using to listen to us. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, but you think, well, if I wanted to share this with someone, where could they start? Now they get a whole month to catch up on 22 episodes. Look for a title in the feed that appeals to you. Are you interested in Pokemon that aren't at all Pokemon? Swearing babies? Plastic planets? Because you've got like 13 hours of content now. There's... that's a while. That's a season. But if you do start to miss us, then please let us know. Because whilst absence makes the heart grow fonder, abstinence does not work. A bit of meta-research has established, hopefully, once and for all, that the abstinence-only sex ed programmes many American schools offer, which the American government likes to fund in aid programmes for places abroad, help no one. They don't slow down when kids start having sex. They don't help them have safer sex because, as we mentioned, they are having sex. They don't prevent teen pregnancy. And they seriously underserve kids who are part of the LGBT community, are already having sex, or have been victims of any sexual abuse or trauma. And Remember, all the countries that offer really good sex ed have way lower teen pregnancy rates. And one final carnal piece of news. Researchers are calling for an end, or at least an alternative, to using rabbits to test sexual lubricants. That's a sentence I regret having to say. I mean, surely, once you've established that they're skin safe, you can test them on humans. Research participants wanted for slippery fun. <laughs> if you would like to get in contact with us for research into slippery fun, you can find us at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter or Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. That's Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. But until next time, we'll be back in time for the Ig Nobel Prize of 2017. Until then, that's all from me. And all from me. Bye bye.